The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. like rich singing with those hymns, isn't it? Come you weary. Man, Jake was telling me earlier this week they were going to sing it, and um, I haven't sung that song in a long time. Um, just a good reminder of really the, the, the message of hope for all of us sinners to come to Christ. And when you sing that song, because we all are poor and needy, and we all need saving. We all need the Savior. And in fact, that's exactly the theme to which we will be in our walk through the book of Zephaniah tonight. And so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask if you will, turn over to Zephaniah chapter 2. Zephaniah chapter 2. And tonight we will look at the entirety of chapter 2, all 15 verses of this right here in the heart of this book. And if you have been with us over the last couple of weeks, or even if you've missed, what we have found in the Scripture, in the book of Zephaniah, is a call to understand the day of the Lord, and it's coming, and it's near. Zephaniah, when you understand the the day of the Lord, it's a two-sided understanding. Number one, and that we've seen most of the prevalent of, of our walk, is with this understanding that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming upon the sin of Judah and the surrounding enemies around Judah. But the second part of Zephaniah that we have found is this message of hope. And that hope is in the call to repent. And that's where we find ourselves actually here in Zephaniah chapter 2. And I was actually talking with a few people this morning and over the last couple of weeks that, you know, no one really preaches on the minor prophets anymore because they deliver a heavy blow. You know, it really is, I mean, it's, they don't really relinquish the message. They don't cut back on the throttle. It seems even when I was reading through the book of Amos personally, even this week, I thought, man, Zeph- I mean, Amos, let up just a little bit. But you don't see him do that. It is continuing to, for the people of God to understand the severity to which they have placed themselves. Sin is in the camp. Sin in Judah, sin of Israel, and sin within the surrounding nations. And this is the message that this prophet is bringing over and over and over again. So egregious, an affront to God that punishment will come. But even in the midst of this message of punishment, there's hope. And we will find that in verses 1 through 3 tonight in chapter 2. So we take a little bit of a break like for maybe two minutes, on this message of judgment that Zephaniah brings. And here is the message of hope, and it's found in repentance. It's found in repentance. And that's where we're going to spend a majority of our time tonight in looking at verses 1 through 3, and then we will look at verses 4 through 15. And tonight, what I want to do is I want us to look at three points. Number one, I want us to see God's grace in the gift of giving us repentance. It's very much an act of grace that God gives to us to allow us to repent of our sins. It is an act of grace. Number two, what I want us to look at, as I want us to look at what does repentance look like? And repentance, as we will find in verse three, it is seeking the Lord and the application that flows from seeking the Lord. And then number three, the consequences of not repenting. The consequences of not repenting. So if you will, if you're not already there, Open up to Zephaniah chapter 2, and let's read these 15 verses tonight. Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. 
before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ascalon shall become a desolation. Ashad's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, O you nation of the Cherites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And the houses of Escalon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people. They have made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab should become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their own lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be an awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh as a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in their midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in their capitals. A voice shall hoot in the wind. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely. This, that, excuse me, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. What a message. What a message. In Zephaniah chapter 2, if you will, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to lead our time in his word this morning, excuse me, to this evening. So if you will, bow your heads. Father, we are grateful for tonight, this Lord's Day, and the, as the evening has come, we cap our day being together, the people of God, to build in fellowship and to be able to sit and listen and be edified by the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would teach us through your word now. Teach us, Lord, convict us, encourage us in our walk. And Lord, I pray that your name will be glorified in everything that I say. And Lord, I will decrease and you will increase for all of us to behold the glory and the majesty of who you are. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's look at our first point tonight. God's grace given through the act of repentance. God's grace given through the act of repentance. Look with me in verses 1 through 2. Judah calls, excuse me, Zephaniah calls Judah to come together and to be gathered. This wording of coming together is a group setting, but it's also an individual call to hear the message that Zephaniah is bringing to the people of God. There is an individual responsibility to everybody who is left in the nation of Judah. And notice what he, he says here in this gathering. He calls Judah, O shameless nation. That's what I have in the ESV. As I was looking at other versions, the King James Version says, O nation not desired. These words should stand out for us as a very much and a call to attention, to give us alarm to the message that Zephaniah is coming. This should give him a shock and awe, so to speak, from the prophet Zephaniah. And look at these three words as we break them down here briefly. Gather would be a connotation of gathering of sticks and straw. It very much is the connection to Exodus chapter 4 when Israel's told to make bricks without straw, to gather what you can and try to make bricks with the tools, i.e. the straw that you need to make material. Then he moves on to be shameless. 
Zephaniah is telling Judah, you are a people who do not care about the consequences of your actions. They're shameless. You don't understand the severity of your sin. And then he uses the word nation. Now, when we come to this word nation, we, of course, know in the Old Testament that many times Judah, Israel, is referred to as a nation, the nation of God's people. But this connotation here, this word that we see in verse 1, is actually a reference to calling Judah a pagan nation. That's the connection here. So if you think about what these words are conveying that Zephaniah is delivering to Judah, this would be very much of not necessarily mockering of them, but it would be an insult. It's not pushing them to the ground, but it would be calling attention to the severity of their sin. Think about it like this. It would be very much if someone of respect and authority came to you and used, as my grandmother used to say as a cuss word, you're acting like a fool. That would cause you to be alarmed. Think about it for a second. If my, even if my grandma was here today and she said, Kenny, you're acting like a shameless nation, it would cause me from the hair to stand up on the back of my neck. It would cause me to have attention. And that's exactly what we find here in verses 1 and 2. And look, as we move into verse 2 here for a moment, you can sense with this old shameless, shameless nation that there is an urgency to the message. Now, as we've been studying the book of Zephaniah, this has been a reoccurring theme, this sense of urgency, especially coupled with the day of the Lord, because we don't know when the day of the Lord will pass. But here, you can feel this sense of urgency when he uses the term, before the decree takes place, before the day passes like chaff. What does he mean by that? If you are a student of the Old Testament, you would realize that chaff is often associated with the wheat harvest. Think about the book of Ruth. You remember when Boaz is celebrating the Lord's kindness and his providence and they celebrate the, the feast that the Lord has provided for them and all of his men are gathered around in their fields and they're sleeping at night to protect the wheat there? If you know the process that is separating the wheat and the chaff, it literally would be taking a pitchfork, throwing the wheat into the air. The wheat would drop and what would blow away the chaff? The wind. We don't know when the wind will blow. We can't see it coming a lot of times. We can hear it, but we don't know when the wind is going to pass across our face. And that's what we find here with a sense of urgency when Zephaniah calls them, oh, shameless nation. An urgency in the message to do what? To repent and to seek the Lord. This is what we find over and over and over again, the sense of urgency. Another way for us to understand this expression is strike while the iron is hot. I'm sure you've heard that expression before, strike while the iron is hot. The iron is hot for Judah, and they should see with this prophet coming and calling these words of insult, O shameless nation, could cause them to stand at attention and to see the severity of what's taking place. And in order for us to understand God's grace through repentance, oftentimes we have to first understand how bad the situation really is. It's very much like a fall that you would have. I know if you're like me, a couple years ago, I, I, I sprained my ankle really bad, and I thought I was okay. I walked on it, I walked on it, I walked on it. Of course, when you go to the doctor and you can't take the pain, he does the x-ray, and what does he do? Man, this is, this is really bad. You didn't realize how bad it really was. And in order for us to understand grace, a lot of times we need to understand how bad the situation at hand is. And let me explain to you how bad it is with this one word that we see in verse 2. Shameless. Shameless. The Hebrew word nixkop means to turn white, to be pale. Another way for us to understand this is that the nation of Judah did not turn pale or turn white. Let me say it another way. Did not blush at the severity of their own sin. Shame, as you know, is a tool that is often the means to help us to see sin. Think about our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they sinned against God and they took the forbidden fruit, what did they do when God came and called them by name as he was walking in the Garden of Eden? They ran and hid. They were ashamed of what had taken place. Think about Peter in John chapter 13 when Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me three times. And when the incident happens, what, Peter, what does Peter do? He runs and hides. 
He is ashamed of his actions. Because what shame does for us, it reveals our sinful nature and our actions. It, it pricks us to see within our heart that we have sinned. It's a sense of embarrassment. And that's why our natural response is to hide. And ladies and gentlemen, I think we all have been guilty of it before. Whether it's a sin in public or private. Whether it's a front against God or a friend or a family member. We're all guilty of running and hiding when this takes place. But this also happens when we are far removed from being in the presence of God. When we begin to numb ourselves to sin, when we begin to allow our consciences, our hearts, to become hardened to the sin and that has so easily encroached us, we don't even see it coming and yet we get numb to it. Our heart gets hardened. And then we become like Judah. We're shameless. We don't even turn white. We don't even blush anymore. We begin to go down this dark path that sin takes us down. It's very similar that we've seen with God's people. And you may recall in Exodus chapter 32, you can flip there if you would like, but in Exodus 32 is the great incident of the golden calf. And look what happened to this idea that the, the nation of Israel was shameless. When they saw Moses, Exodus 32.1, delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered to themselves to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They lost their senses. They forgot the way of the Lord. And so what did they do? Let's fashion an idol. And if you know the Exodus account and you see of the atrocity of sin that is listed here at the worship of the golden calf, there's sexual immorality, there's worshiping after false gods. There is a whole host of sin taking place in the, sin of, in the camp of Israel. And so egregious is this sin there in Exodus 32 that over 3,000 people are killed. And this is what we find ourselves in excuse me, Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 1. And this is what we have to heed the warning to with this idea of being shameless. Christian, if you, if you walk through this world today, you have to be mindful of Jesus' warning to us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, by warning us not to lay treasures on earth and to see that the eye is the lamp of the body. What we gaze our attention to, just like we see that the nation and the people of Judah have done, they have worshipped false idols. Baal is back into the picture again, as we saw in Zephaniah chapter 1. If we begin to flee the Lord and back away from worshipping Him, we can expect our hearts to grow callous against the things of the Lord. But we have to be watchful of this. Because it it is dreadful in the eyes of the Lord, this idea of sin. All these, these word pictures that we find in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, should help us to see the seriousness of sin. And this is why the judgment is coming. This is why this message of, that is so heavy upon the heart of Zephaniah, even the heart of us here tonight to hear, because this is an affront before a holy God. That's how bad it is. That's how bad sin is. When you look at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, of course, it affected our relationship before God, but as you see, sin affected everything on the face of the earth. Everything. When sin touches its nasty hands on things, it destroys it instantly. And ladies and gentlemen, we have to be watchful of our walk every moment, moment by moment, living before the face of God, core and Deus, so that we can be watchful. The people of Israel forgot the command to love the Lord their God with all their heart and their soul and their might. They forgot that they were called to teach them diligently to their children, to talk them at, at your house and when you sit and when you rise. They forgot to bind them as a sign on your hands and the frontlets of your eyes and the doorposts of your house. They lost the view that God had delivered them from Egypt and countless other enemies. They forgot the Lord. And this is how 
This is the picture that helps us to see how bad it really is. This is the doctor's diagnosis. It is bad. And this also, on the flip side, helps us to see how sweet God's grace is to us. And this is the same connection we can see in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. Repentance. Paul there, just like Judah, forgot the kindness, the mercy, the deliverance of the Lord, of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Instead, they sought the path of shame. They turned and they fled from God. But this is grace, the call to repent here in the first half of chapter 2. This is very much grace, and this is the heart of our God. We see this when he passes by Moses in Exodus chapter 32. He is known for his steadfast love, his mercy, and forgiving of iniquity. This is the heart and the picture of a holy God. He forgives people from their sin. And what we have to see with this idea of grace here is that we have to constantly recall what Judah forgot. They have to recall what God did. We have to remember the kindness and the mercy that Lord has given to us. The word remember in the Old Testament is mentioned over 130 times. 130 times. And when you begin to do word study and you research where the connection of this word remember, it is often associated with the story of the Exodus. And why is that? Because it's the story of deliverance. It's the story when ex- the people were delivered from slavery, from the slate. And we too, when we look at it this, through the lens of the gospel, we too have been delivered from the sin of slavery. And as Romans chapter 6 reminds us, now we are slaves to righteousness. This is, and this is what grace is. Looking on the kindness of God that only leads us to repentance. And this is the message and the beauty and the hope of the gospel. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. To save you, to save me from our plight of sin. This is the message of Zacchaeus. You remember when he gets saved and Zacchaeus, excuse me, the Lord there in his house says, see, this is not even a son of Abraham. And what he's referring to there is faith, true, genuine faith from Zacchaeus. And he says, surely salvation has come to this house for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was saved by his genuine conversion through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the pure, perfect picture of divine grace. And through the message of the gospel is the message to repent of sin. Which then leads us naturally for us to understand what does repentance look like? What does repentance look like? Repentance is seeking the Lord. Look with me in verse 3. Look with me in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the Lamb, who do His just commands, Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So grace forces us to remember what the Lord has done, to realize how good and kind and forgiving our Lord is. And for us also to see the severity of sin, our sinful nature and our actions, and therefore we repent. And so what does Zephaniah lay out for us here in the Old Testament? What does repentance look like? First, we can see most importantly, it's by seeking the Lord. And what is seeking the Lord? What is this? It's a heartfelt motivation as Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen lays out for us. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. It is a seeking of diligence with persistence. The Greek and the Hebrew word here, which are kind of on the same term, this word means to search for a desire, it is a demand, it's seeking a resolution, it is getting to the bottom of it. As if this is seeking the face of the Lord. One who is seeking the Lord, as Isaiah 66, 2 reminds us, all these things my hands have made, all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Seeking the Lord is always going to be accompanied by the word of the Lord. 
The two go hand in hand. And this is required for us if we're going to repent. As we open up and pour our minds and our hearts by reading the scriptures, we will find the message of repentance as over and over and over again. We see it not only when we come to faith in Christ, we will repent of our sins, but we also see it as a daily call to repent. And we'll unpack that in more detail in just a few moments. But we also see the second requirement to repent, and that is through humility. Humility. We saw in Isaiah 66 too, he was humble and contrite in spirit. We see it with those who are humble the land and also who seek humility. You never find the Lord in Scripture going after one who is pride and has a prideful heart. We don't see that. The ones who are going to inherit the earth, as we see in Matthew 5 5, are those who are meek, those who are humble. Proverbs 76, verse 9 says, When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. God saves and redeems the humble because they know their position and light of who God is. They know that they are also poor in spirit, that they are lost without the Savior. And so they come humbly before the Lord, humbly for the Lord Jesus. And know if it's, without, if it's not without Christ, They are dead in their trespasses and sins. John Owen, the great and famous hymn writer of Amazing Grace, who was a former English slave trader and later turned a pastor, said this, I am persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences that he is indeed our master. Humility should be the daily virtue of the Christian. It's not always easy, if we're honest. We love the pat on the back. We love the attaboys. We love the high fives. But the reality, the call of the Christian life is to be meek, to be humble, to be lowly, like we see from the perfect picture of meekness and humility and through the of Jesus. But also with humility, How we can be humble is also connecting us here with seeking the Lord by having a right view of who God is and to see his majesty and his greatness. This will always humble us. You may remember in Job chapter 42, right at the end of the book of Job, when he understands the greatness of who God is, after over 30-some chapters, God is silent, and there in chapter 37, God speaks. He speaks with a vengeance God does in the book of Job. And after everything that God has said, Job says it well. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's behold the majesty and the glory of God. And that is his only response. He's humbled before the Lord. And what does he do? He repents. He repents. The same attitude we find in Exodus chapter 34, verse 8. Again, I referenced this earlier, but when Moses wanted to see the face of God, and remember he, God said, no, you can't. He puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he can only see the back of who God is. And after the Lord had passed by him, what is his, Moses' response? Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. A view of the holy is always going to humble us, just like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's the proper response. And by the way, let me give you this nugget for free. I'll give you this nugget. The more we seek the face of God, the more we grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, the more we understand of who God is, his sovereignty, his majesty, his grace, the more we are going to see how sinful we really are. And that in turn is always going to humble us. Always going to humble us. And it's also going to make us see how precious God's unmerited favor has been extended to us. How sweet the grace of God is. And what's the third one? Who do his just commands and seek righteousness. These always go hand in hand. To seek righteousness and to obey 
the commands. Amos, another minor prophet, said, but let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos chapter 5, verse 24. We even see in Isaiah chapter 9, describing Christ there, he is described with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God's people are always going to be distinct because we obey the word of the Lord. We see in Genesis chapter 1, excuse me, as well as in chapter 2, that when God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to till the land, they're supposed to obey the Lord. This is not on their own fruition. This is not just a good idea or a suggestion. This is coming from Yahweh, Elohim there, that we find in Genesis. And this is our daily call to obey the word of the Lord, to do his just commands and to seek righteousness. And this is what repentance looks like. These are the attributes of a repentant heart. But I also want to go a little bit further and to give you a couple of other practical applications for us to see this heart of what it means to repent. And I'm going to just just give you a few of these that will help you in your Christian walk and as well as help me. Number one, flee sin. Flee sin. We understand already in the message of Zephaniah, we have to see how egregious sin is. But we never need to linger there. We never need to stay there. This Greek word flee means to escape, to, to flee away, to seek safety by flight, to shun something abhorrent. Flee sin. You may remember the great prophetic movie, Forrest Gump. It's not prophetic, I know. It's probably not the best movie in the world, but I like Forrest Gump. But you remember in the very beginning of Forrest Gump when Forrest has a little friend named Jenny. And you may remember the sad part of witnessing Jenny's life. She has a horrible household, an abusive father, alcoholic father. And you remember the scene where she runs out into the cornfield and she prays with Forrest there. Remember her prayer? Dear Lord, make me a bird so I can fly far, far away. She just wants to flee the scene, to get out of Dodge. And that's exactly what we have to do with sin. Never think you are a master over your sin. The moment you do, you're going to be caught up in the snares of the devil. The moment that prideful thought comes into your mind, flee it. And that's exactly the exhortation we find from Paul. He says it two times to his young disciple, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Flee these things. Don't linger, run. Don't linger, run. That's always the call when we find in repentance. Number two, as we've already discussed, always have a healthy view of sin. John Owen, the great Puritan writer, wrote a fantastic book called The Mortification of Sin. And if you've never read it, I would suggest you, you buy it and read it. The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. And I've I wrote this definition a long time ago. I don't remember when I wrote it down. But he talks about having a healthy and proper view of sin because it's a danger and it's life-killing consequences. That's what he says. Life-killing consequences that it holds. Look what he says further on. Get a clear and abiding sense upon your mind and your conscience of the guilt, danger, and evil of the sin to which you are troubled. That's a healthy view of sin. And then number three, as we briefly mentioned back in verse two, never stop repenting. Never stop repenting. The first call to see and understand the kingdom of God by John the Baptist was to do what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. We see it over and over and over again. Yes, we are to call to confess our sins when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, that's important. But if we are going to be growing in the likeness of Christ and growing in the sanctification and being transformed from one glory to another, we are going to be confessing our sin and to the day the Lord returns or He calls us home. If we are going to, like Paul encourages us in Philippians chapter 3, to 
achieve the call of the upper call in Christ Jesus, then we're going to have to confess sin. If we're going to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, as we find in 2 Peter 3, then we are going to have to repent of our sin. If we're going to walk worthy of the manner to which we've been called in Colossians 1, then we are going to have to daily confess sin. Never stop repenting. Never stop repenting. Flip over in your Bible to the New Testament, to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Look what the Apostle John writes by those who are walking in the light and as well as he contrasts those who are walking in darkness. Starting in verse 5. And this is the message we have heard from him, Jesus, and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, no sin. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 1, verse 7. Listen to this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and is to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. There's the grace of the Father. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you know much about First John, you know he's all about his verbs. He's all about his action. He's all about his responsibility for the Christian to act. And in verse 9, if you were to study the Greek, you would see that it is a present tense verb there of confessing our sin. It never stops. We never stop confessing our sin. And that's where we find ourselves here. And look with me at the tail end of verse 3. Zephaniah says something interesting. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Perhaps. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Perhaps you may be hidden from the day of the Lord. What does he mean there? What does the prophet mean? As I was studying this word, often when we see this, especially when you study the Hebrew text, when you see perhaps, it is often associated with the phrase, in order that. So if you were humble, you seek the Lord, you do as just commands, in order that you may be hidden from the day of the anger of the Lord. But Zephaniah here gives us a little ambiguity. It's a little unclear of what he means, but as I have studied and prayed, what I find here is that those who truly repent, they will be hidden from the day of the Lord and his anger. But here is the catch. It's all an act and a decision of grace. It really is a decision of grace to hide those from the day of the Lord. But what we see here from the prophet is more of the message to repent now. Judgment is coming. We don't know when, but judgment is coming. And so, seek the Lord while he may be found, that the Lord may hide you. But we also see here in that tail end of verse 3, is that he is a covenant-keeping God. We have understood in chapter 1 that there is a remnant. There is a people who are faithful. And those are the people I believe, when we look at verse 3, will be hidden. Those who have true, genuine faith in the Lord. Those who will be able to withstand this hot anger of the Lord. Which now moves us into our third point tonight. So now we've understand God's grace given through the act of repentance. Number two, we've seen now what repentance looks like, and that's by seeking the Lord. And this is where we move back into our story of judgment. Number three, we find the consequences of not repenting. Not repenting. Now what we find here in verses 4 through 15 is the connecting word of four. 
there in verse 4, for Gaza shall be deserted. And what this connecting word here that's taking us from verses 2, 1 through 3 into 4 through the end of the chapter here is a message of saying this. Repent now because this is what's going to happen. You see the connection there? That's what we find here in Zephaniah. Repent now because this is the day of the Lord that's going to come. This is very much like your parent telling you, don't touch the hot stove. I'm warning you because you're going to burn yourself. There's consequences to your action. And so this is very much what we find here with that connecting word in 4. And so as we move through verses 4 through 15, now judgment is coming to the surrounding Gentile nations and the enemies of God. And Zephaniah is very strategic with this judgment that's coming. Because if you notice, if we had a map up here, I wish we, wish we were, this is actually a great plug for Richard Smith's class. Not to know that his class is better than mine, because it's not. But what we do know from Richard, I'm just kidding, Richard. But, but what we know is he's doing a great study, um, especially walking through the timeline, even with Zephaniah. But if you were to see a map up here, you would find that all these enemies that are listed in verses 4 through 15 are close within the nation of Judah. And they're coming from all sides, from the north, the south, and the east, and the west. So let's look briefly at verses 4 through 7 as we look at the cities of the Philistines. We see here a couple of nations listed. Gaza, Eshkelon, Ekron, and Ashad. Zephaniah's words here and this language that he is using here is a play on of words with these for us to understand what kind of destruction is going to take for take happen on these nations. They're uprooted, they're deserted, they're driven out at noon, and desolation. This play on of words is helping us to see the word picture of someone who is deserted. Someone is kicked out. That's what we see here. That's the play on of words that we find in Zephaniah verses 4 through 7. And it is a quick and it is a total destruction that is coming upon these cities. To give you a little background here, Gaza and Escalon will be taken down by the infamous Nebuchadnezzar, and he will desolate these cities. In fact, a little further on into biblical history, Pharaoh Necho actually devastates where the, really the headquarters are of, of, the, of the city of, of the Philistines. And later, it's actually been used as a battleground of the Maccabean Wars. And so, but more importantly, it's desolated. But notice a little hope in verses 6 through 7 within the cities of the Philistines. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for the shepherds and folds for the flocks. The seacoast shall be, become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, for they shall graze, and the houses of Eshkelon, for they shall lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Right in the middle of this judgment of the Philistines, there is a glimmer of hope for the remnant. And what's he describing here? These territories will be a pasture land for the people of God. He will restore their fortunes for those, the remnant of Judah, those who are faithful. The picture here is God being seen as a shepherd, leading his people like sheep to be able to graze, to be able to eat, and to have a home. It's interesting, isn't it, that we find here right in the judgment in verses 4 through 7. The shepherd allows his people to come back and graze. And look with me in verses 8 through 11. Now we move to Moab and Ammon. If you know anything about these two nations, they are related by Israel because of Lot's ancestral relationship with his daughters. It's not good. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 19, verses 36 through 38. But these are the nations that come from Lot's relationships with his daughters. And they are frequently in conflict with the nation of Israel. And what they do is listed here in verses 8 through 11. They insult Yahweh and his people, and they are prideful. You can see there that they constantly taunted the nation 
of Judah. They mocked God's people with their insults and their cries. You can find this mockery in 1 Samuel chapter 11 when David's soldiers went to the Ammonite king and what did he do to them? He shaved their beard. Remember that? He shaved their beard, mocked them right there in front of them. And remember David's soldiers went back to King David and they couldn't even come back into the city. They had to grow their beard. That's the mockery that we find from these two nations. And because of this, because of their mockery of the Lord, and because of how they insult the people of God, they will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. They will be a wasteland forever. And why is it forever? Because they're going to be salt pits. Salt pits. A wasteland forever. There in verse 9. And then we can look in verse 11. What that picture of the Lord will be an awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. And to him shall bow down each one's own place all the lands of the nations. There is the final judgment. That's what I find in my study there in verse 11. This is what we find here in the day of the Lord that will come when Jesus returns. He will destroy all the false gods. And as Paul writes even in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow down before the Lord. And then we come in verses 12 through 15 the judgment on Cush and Assyria. You can't get any more brief of what's going to happen to the Cushites. You'll be slain by the sword. Boom, that's it. <laughs> Very brief. The brevity also shows you the severity of their sin. That's how quick they're going to be wiped out. By the sword. And then we come to Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. If you know much about the city of Nineveh, it's a tall city. It's a beautiful city. It is known for its pretty much technological advances because it, it irrigated water to the city. It's very beautiful. In fact, I found a couple of pictures um, of the city of Nineveh that was described um, through, through the Old Testament history. But even though water was flowing to the city, even though it's beautiful, even though its tall, towering walls were a picture of security, for the Ninevites, notice in verse 15, those are the three things that are going to be struck down. Its beauty is going to be struck down, its security is struck down, and its self-sufficiency. All there in verse 15. And why? Because they mocked God. I am, and there is no one else. They broke the first and the second command. This is, where this is their downfall. And friends, I would say this would be our downfall too. As soon as we begin to take pride in our beauty and our security and our self-sufficiency, we can be sure this is going to lead us to God punishing us, disciplining us because of our sin. And to give you a little background, the Syrian Empire was, was crushed in 609 B.C., all through an alliance through Egypt under, the, under Pharaoh Necho II. They become a desolation. And Nahum, if, as we will study here in the coming weeks, describes this destruction in even more detail of the city of Nineveh. But this is what happens. This is what happens when we don't heed the call from the Lord to repent, to turn. Because judgment will come. The discipline of the Lord will come. And never forget, this is how serious God takes sin. This is how serious God takes sin. And this also should help us to see, as God is dealing with Judah and the surrounding nations, our God is not absent. He is not silent. Though this happened thousands of years ago, he knows exactly what's going on in the world today. It doesn't take you long to flip over the news, to look on social media, to see that we live in a fallen world. It makes you pretty sad to be able to read the news articles and to see the destruction and the sin that is taking place all across this globe. But we should never forget 
that the message of Zephaniah is a message for us today. We have no idea when the Lord will return. But what we do know is that there is an urgency for us to repent of our sin. To be ready today. To see like the parable of the waiting servant in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus tells his disciples to always be ready for you don't know when the Son of Man will return. We always have to be ready. And I believe that's what we see here in our closing time in Zephaniah chapter 2. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to take the heed to live as a faithful servant of Jesus. To take heed to seek the Lord while he may be found and to be humble, to repent of our sins, to do his just commands, to seek righteousness because we do not want to feel and to face the anger of the Lord. Take heed. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And to see that we have on this earth a limited amount of time to make our life count. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to a close in Zephaniah chapter 2, and we see the severity of, of sin, we see how serious you take sin, but Lord, we also see right there grace. Grace. Grace in the form of giving us the opportunity to repent. Father, matchless grace. Unmerited favor. And Father, I pray for all of us in this room or watching online or, or listening to it later. Father, help us never to forget all that you've done. Never forget, Lord, your kindness that you've extended to us. And Father, may the kindness of the Lord lead us to repentance. Father, help us to be a people who constantly repent, who flee sin, to turn the other way. And Father, help us to be a people who seek holiness, a people who seek righteousness. Father, I pray this for all of us in this room. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. And I pray all these things in Christ's good and holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.